The Money Store. Reservoir Dogs. This is Off the List. Welcome back to Off the List, which is our podcast for that nebulous list of art that we all have and wish to consume and have a friend now to keep ourselves accountable. I am the music nerd, so I supply all the albums, and Nadira is the movie nerd, so she supplies all the movies. At this point, hopefully the format makes sense to you, and this week we have a very, very special episode. Mm -hmm. I've I've been looking forward to this episode since we conceived (laughs) of the show. It just... It just was one that wasn't right to start off with, but I knew it was just going to be perfect. <laughs> and so this week we are reviewing The Money Store by Death Grips and mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs by Quentin Tarantino. Truly just mm-hmm. a fountain of male toxicity. Toxicity, all <laughs> the toxicity, baby. <laughs> so let's start off with the album. I think that the most important question I want to ask you off jump, Nadira, just what was your thought halfway through listening the first time? Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess we can do this first and then we can do it's giving because it really was <laughs> giving something. Um, <laughs> giving a lot. Um, to be completely honest, I was texting my friend, shout out to Oscar. He's like one of the five people who listens to this podcast. And, um, <laughs> he was, I was like texting him like, oh, this is the album I'm listening to like for the next episode, by the way. And he was like, oh, cool. And then he was like, how are you feeling about it? And I was legit halfway through at that moment. And I said, exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm oh actually tired. I have stopped taking notes. Like, we are tired. Like, I am, I feel as though I have run a marathon and I am only halfway through. (laughs) Okay. Okay. First of all, this album is giving. (laughs) Yes. It's giving the feeling of a toxic man, read toxic in all caps, who wants to rob a bank, right? Inject that feeling into Frankenstein's monster. Give Frankenstein's monster a crippling mental illness and then put that Frankenstein's monster with that mental illness who wants to rob a bank into a basement during a college party in North Philly. That is what this (laughs) album is giving. Oh my God. Oh, okay. I was waiting for you to tie it back to Philly. Like it had to be tied back to a city at some point because it's like such an industrial project. It really truly is so industrial. Yeah. So a, a quick bit of recap for the listeners who don't know. Death Grips are an experimental hip-hop trio out of Sacramento. They essentially burst online and resided pretty much predominantly online. They weren't really scene-based. For the early 2010s, they released this one mixtape that everyone was buzzing about because it just was crazy off the wall. And this is their debut project that came a year later. And when Mm -hmm. this came out collectively everyone just said what the fuck is this <laughs> oh yes i have some uh some comments that i found on youtube that i can't wait to read because your favorite uh internet 
music critic, the needle drop. <laughs> I was looking when I was um, looking up this album as I was listening to it. I saw that this was the first album that he had given a 10 out of 10. Yep. And so then I went to that video, of course. The, co- the comments. <laughs> I want people to go to that video and read the comments. Just three of my favorites. One was like, this album feels like joining a cult. One, <laughs> not perfect. Far better album than their last album, Abbey Road. <laughs> <laughs> and then my absolute favorite, <laughs> true patrician music. And then the comment underneath that said, this is the comment that ruined everything. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so good. Uh, that, yeah. Okay, and that, that is another thing. Fantano's 10 secured, in my mind, what this album truly exists in, which is an album that was just birthed out of the internet. The and internet... And everything just horrible and disgusting that we didn't realize that the internet was going to create just birthed this album. And just like when you click on a video of a car crash or some horrific terrorist attack when you're 12 years old and you don't know better, you can't click away. You just Mm -hmm. continue to watch and absorb the content as it's happening to you. And you will never think the same way about the internet online and in the same way with death grips you're not going to think about music the same way because this album blows your mind in expectation of what music can be yeah so let's talk let's let's (laughs) let's talk about let's talk about that for a second shall we um okay this album is great but, yes, I, I like that you like it. That is honestly the biggest surprise so far. Well, do I? Here's the thing. I, so as you know, I don't know if the listeners know, but I'm someone who really goes off of like lyrics first and vocals first. Rough ride here. And trying, trying to figure out um, without mincing words what the fuck was going on. <laughs> And not in a like, oh, this is so cool. What the fuck's going on? In a like, I am so lost right now. Mommy, come help me. What the fuck is going on? (laughs) I don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand why you're saying it that way. And what happened to grammar? Like, are we just listing words? Words that mean things that I don't understand because I am not a toxic man who has a crippling mental illness who is selling drugs. Like, I don't understand. one song, I believe it's a hacker where he name checks Tesla Lady Gaga. Okay, and, that's okay, 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 um, okay. I think it's Bjork, like all in the same song. All in the same. In the same yeah, verse so, too. Need, needless to say, that's my favorite. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe because I understood the words Gaga, Bjork, and Tesla, who knows? Um, but I mean, we can get into that. But yes, I just, I, this is definitely an album that warrants multiple listens because there were certain songs I had to repeat because I was like, okay, so what we're going to do is not pay attention to whatever he's saying right now. And we're going to actually listen to like the entire soundscape of the song. Some songs were easier to do that than others. And some songs do have like genius was really out here (laughs) saving per usual, but some some songs really do have, I mean, incredibly dark and scary and horrible, but also really enticing stories. Um, 
There's literally a song, and I mean, I guess we can get into the male toxicity of this too, but there's literally a song where like in the first verse, he describes murdering what I presume to be a sex worker. And I was like, bro. But then I was like, but it's kind of a bop though. Like I'm so angry yeah, I, about I, I, this. I say that, um, at this album verges into the lyricism verges into a form of industrial grunge and even grind core at times where that kind of violence mm. and toxicity is so rampant and displayed that it's viewed more as kind of a discussion of its emotion and rather than its moral implications because every character in this universe is already fully aware that what they're doing is horrific and they just don't care it, right. it just does not matter to them in the slightest and yeah oh my god it's yeah so and toxic. so from that point forward <sighs> it's essentially an agreement when you click on this album that that toxicity city is there you just don't even have like a chance right. to think about it and process it it's more just okay we're going to discuss now the kind of emotional rampage that comes from it existing it is really good at making you want to listen in and actually digest those feelings because the hooks the hooks are so there are so many yeah they really i mean they really i mean the hooks from the lyrics are great the hooks from the music they really know how to start a song how to end a song and then how to give you a great hook like those are really three things i was like every song starts with a bop ends with a bop and has a bop that repeats Mm -hmm. in the middle like there's like no matter what's going on in the verses like you either like it or you don't and most songs i like there are a few songs i was kind of like i guess um but every single one of them like hustle bones when it ended i was like yes oh i got i I was like i was like bobbing my head there's that run in the middle of the album where it ends with I've seen footage, which to me is the perfect, if I had to, if I always have to show one death grip song to someone, it's usually I've seen footage because it's at least likely to push them away, I should say. It sounds like Push It by Salt and Peppa, but like combined with like an outcast yeah, but, song. Like it was like very, I was like, oh, this is where we're going. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, it's brutality on footage and how that impacts the way that he looks at police. And how, then yes. from that, it's this acid trip of a song. Mm-hmm. where you've got these melted guitars that just cannot get help but get hooked. And then so I, another many thing drugs. I also want to say is his so many affectation in the way that he changes his delivery when he is in a full throat scream yelling lyrics versus something on like Get Got where he's essentially whispering into the mic and everything <laughs> is screaming and swirling around him. He, as an MC, is just so versatile that it blows your mind when you think about all the ground he covers what is it with people who make critically acclaimed music <laughs> not wanting to enunciate they have so what much is to it? say they have so what much to say they gotta get through i have quick. a question <laughs> they bjork was out here going slow <laughs> radiohead quick no 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 what is it (laughs) i want to know i'm not saying listen i'm not saying that it's wrong or right i'm just saying is there something going on that i that i'm missing because i feel like enunciating is great you know i'm a big fan of enunciating you know like it's i don't know what happened over there but um yeah i do 
Yeah, that song was definitely noticeably different. I hate to use the word more commercial, mm. but definitely more palatable. Because it's a pop song. The oh, masses. I, I say this to people a lot of the time, but people just don't realize that Death Grips just took hip hop, grindcore, and said, what if we just make pop songs with those two things? And from that has birthed just, just this craziness. Yeah, it's a hard it's a hard album to talk about, actually, I'm finding right now. Because it's like, what do you say? What do you say? <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, it's just so multiplicitous, you know? Like, it, it's got so much just going the fuck on. And a lot of it is great. Like, a lot of it, you know, I felt very much, like, if you're into the sort of, like, quilted aspect of music, as I like to call it, um, of, like, you know, a JPEG mafia, where it's, like, a whole bunch of samples and a whole bunch of sounds that, like, kind of change and alternate and come back and whatever, whatever, then this is definitely, like, what appears to be the sort of mm-hmm. beginning of that or like the emergence of that. Um, and so that's really fascinating. Just the whole like stitched together nature of the album, you know, it's yeah, very much not very a smooth ride. Of the <laughs> um, influence of industrial sounds on pop music moving forward. It, the most classic example that yeah. fans like to talk to death is that Yeezus came out the next year. Oh, interesting. Fast. Wait, and, what year did this did this album come out? The Money Store. So this came out in 2012. Wow. And then Jesus came out in 2013. Yeah. And Kanye. And he was out here on site, and they were like, mm, "Boo, you stole that." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and by the way, have you ever seen this? I hope that you've seen this photo. There is the potentially the best photo that exists online, which is Death Grips, the three of them mm-hmm. backstage with Robert Pattinson. Oh my God. And Beyonce. Send me this photo right now. Send me this photo <laughs> right now. I will okay. make it my screensaver. I am not kidding. Okay, I'm sending Send it me to you. this. Oh my God. <laughs> Isn't it insane? What is going on here? Not Robert Pattinson in a MTV Letterman jacket. Exactly. So this photo encapsulates also what somewhat surrounds death grips which is everyone's just morbid fascination with a group that essentially refuses to have any one actually get near it and the mm-hmm. the classic example of this is immediately following this album which got rave reviews by people when it should not have because this album is so weird and it's so out there immediately afterward they said they didn't want to work with their label anymore and then so to get themselves fired from their label they recorded an entire new album released it online for free made the cover of that album a literal dick pic of one of the band's members wrote the wrote the album title on the dick and then just put it out for free and naturally def jam was like okay well i guess we have to get rid of them now that's so they're so i like i want you know what i want to do i want to talk to every female fan of death groups i've met a fair amount of female death groups fans by going to some of their shows, mm-hmm. which, by the way, their shows. What is a Death Grip show like? Please enlighten the <laughs> enlighten the audience. So, this this story is a little lengthy, but I'll pare it down to the best parts. Which is, I got there really early because I wanted to be front row, mm-hmm. and the other people who were there early, their names or what they told me their names were were Blood Moon and Jeff. Wait, and Jeff? <laughs> and Jeff. Shout out to my homie Jeff. <laughs> so, and they come out full on 
goth it just to the, to the nines. And they're carrying a baby doll that they've covered in what I hope is fake blood. Uh-huh. And they asked me to take a couple selfies against the gate of Electric Factory with this. And I'm like, hell yeah, sure. And I, so I'm taking the photos for them. And afterwards, they're like, you want some? And they show me a mysterious pull to which I politely refuse because <laughs> I don't know what is going to happen if I take that. And I'm already a little overwhelmed. I go in there. Um, front row and we hear them starting to you know when the music kind of shuts off and you're like all right they're coming mm-hmm. on stage yeah yeah so they came on stage and then just all the lights turned off every, every single light turned off somehow they seem to have gotten the emergency exits lights off which i think is oh illegal. My, that is 100 percent illegal <laughs> yes <laughs> I, I, I think that what actually happened was they threw like a, a tarp over it or something i, I don't oh. know what, i don't know what they did but then so it's completely dark i know they're on stage because i can hear them because i'm there and then they turn on gloves that have laser beams shooting out of the fingertips and they proceed mm-hmm. to play their entire set continuous zero breaks for two hours in complete darkness. Mm-hmm. That um, seems like 100% on brand. I feel as though every detail that has unfolded since you started that story was both equally surprising and not surprising at all whatsoever. Um, <laughs> did you like that experience? How do you feel about that experience? It was easily one of the most impressive shows I've ever been to. Wow. People don't realize how much energy it takes to perform music oh 100 and to continuously perform any piece of music for two hours is exhausting mm-hmm. to continuously perform this music for two hours i could barely listen to it for 30 minutes <laughs> every person in the crowd knew every word. of course they did oh what oh i would it was i would have bet money on that i would have bet i would have bet money on it because as hard as the lyrics are to digest, um, they're very much like essential to the ethos of this band. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's very much like, and that was what was sort of frustrating about how long it took me to even wrap my head around what was going on in some of the songs was I've truly felt like if I didn't get the lyrics that I didn't hear the song like I it's mm-hmm. almost as if I never pressed play and I think that in some ways that's incredibly impressive but I also was just like god damn it this is hard this feels like homework <laughs> <laughs> listen to this album partially at your own risk and but at the same time I do think that for music fans to understand some of the rougher edges that music has gone in in the past decade this album is such a perfect explanation of that. So the movie, as we have mentioned, um, and as I said last week, that I knew kind of needed to happen. I knew where we needed to go once I heard male toxicity, really. We (laughs) needed to go to Tarantino. And so the movie that we're talking about is Reservoir Dogs. I saw it was independent. Is that true? It's an indie film. It is considered the most important or not the most, but one of the most important and influential indie films that's ever been made, yes. That's crazy. Real quick before we also get going, I will say for people who are thinking, why not Pulp Fiction? I have actually seen Pulp Fiction. So we had to pick a different Tarantino movie. And And this one kind of works out a bit better. I mean, Mm -hmm. we'll give the synopsis in a second, but it involves 
robbing a store, a heist, and it involves nonlinear storytelling, and it involves just like a whole bunch of different um, vignettes, I guess you could say, you know, like very much stitching together a story. Um, And so it might have been a better choice. I don't know. It's it's a lot. My immediate impression of Tarantino films are always that they're just really strong ruminations on violence mm-hmm. and particularly male violence yeah and the way that men view violence within their culture mm-hmm. so i think it's a perfect fit for the money store because this is the thinking before you actually do the robbing yeah and then the aftermath of the robbing right. and then the money store is the robbing <laughs> Precisely. And I mean, how fitting then that Reservoir Dogs did not show the actual heist. Um, yes, exactly. It's perfect. Yeah. So, I mean, generally, um, a small synopsis, Reservoir Dogs is a film about a group of men who don't know each other. And so they're all called in to do this heist. They don't know each other before. They all have aliases that are Mr. and then a color. So there's Mr. Pink, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Orange. You get it. Um, and basically what we are given is before the heist, and then we're given after the heist, which, I mean, spoiler alert, goes horribly wrong. (laughs) And so then there's a big sort of discussion about how, why, and when discussion, I mean violence. (laughs) Yes. Um, Not many words are had that don't accompany screams. And a threat, usually. Yeah, or a threat. Um, And again the seeds of Tarantino, like the Tarantino that people now know and love, albeit controversially. Um, (laughs) This is where it all started. And I think that that is very clear. Um, And yeah, so before I talk about my first time watching this movie and what I like and don't like about this movie, I want to know what you thought about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) So I will say that on a purely emotional level, This is maybe my favorite thing you've made me watch so far. Yeah. Because it is just such an emotionally grappling film, even though you know, in the same way with the money stories, you know you kind of don't want to be grabbed by it so hard, but it just, it pulls you in so well. The nonlinear storytelling is so interesting. The decisions for the vignettes are so precise and tell so much more backstory than revealing the robbery mm-hmm. would it would have actually there are a ton of what it, i have only seen pulp fiction so i don't know a ton about tarantonio's kind of beats and cues but to me it seems like there are a ton of what you would consider his classic twists where he will yeah. delay violence in a way where you think you've escaped it and then it will just come around in a very mundane way and still slap you in the face. So this movie is doing a few things that I really enjoy, that I really commend. Um, and I guess we can start off with the nonlinear storytelling, which in of itself is a twist, right? Because it starts off very late. It starts off before the heist when they're all like having... A meal, and you don't know a breakfast who they and talking are. about tipping. A breakfast that okay, again, again, I am a sucker for a film that tells you everything you need to know about what you're about to watch with the first scene. This first scene where they are debating, and Quentin Tarantino throws himself in the movie for 
a few minutes, they are debating the origin of Madonna's Like a Virgin, right? And they are talking about whether Madonna's Like a Virgin, what it means, whether it's like, and you have, you know, a few of the misters who are like, no, it's about her being in love. And then you have Quentin Tarantino, who is Mr. Brown, who's like, it's about dicks, bro. And you're just like, what the hell is wrong with all of them? Why are they talking about this so casually over breakfast? It's just so why vulgar. Is it, why is it so vulgar and so violent? And who are they? How do they know each other? What are they about to do? It's these men who are all dressed in like identical suits that don't match the setting that they are in. Um, and it's also very clear that they like know each other, but not that well, because they're not like, ah, oh, Harry, you've funny guy you know they're just kind of like mm-hmm. what are you talking about man and you're just like you don't okay tip. exactly <laughs> and um yeah and so after they talk about basically like a bastardization of madonna's like a virgin and a bastardization of madonna then they talk about how they don't well they get into this whole conversation about tipping which again is just like a more like financial violence against women you know like it's very (laughs) like it's very misogynistic very early on um and so that's like the perfect setting because you know exactly what kind of people or you think you know exactly what kind of people you're dealing with and but you're not exactly sure what's going on and then it after that scene like cuts to after the heist and chaos just ensues and then from then on They're trying to figure out who set them up, who the rat is in this heist that goes wrong. And in between them kind of showing more of their personality, because again, they don't know each other that well. So it's more so like the more someone gets angry or says something that shows their personality, then you get a a scene that shows how they got into the heist or how they got into this particular gig or job in the first place. And so you get a little bit of their background and doing it that way makes it 10 times more chaotic, but also 10 times more interesting. And it's so much better because then it's basically replacing what you don't get with the heist, which this movie is definitely a sign that you don't need to show everything, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's a movie about a heist that goes wrong. We don't even get to see the heist. And I don't care. I couldn't care less about what goes on in that heist. Not only only do I not care, I also, from memory, because I just watched this, could tell you exactly what went wrong with the heist. Because every character describes it from their own personality and gives you the most important parts of what happens. Mm -hmm. And so they use... So Quentin Tarantino uses these scenes, these vignettes, whatever you want, these flashbacks, whatever you want to call them, as a way to give more character or personalization to the characters and as a way to basically give you a movie that's about about violent men and about the things they do as opposed to a movie that's about a heist, right? Not only the way that violence and men intertwine, the way that men feel about that violence. And I think that's really, really important because that is why I found it emotionally gripping. Even though I often find myself not really relating to a lot of the typical masculine content within my entire lifetime. However, at the same time, watching these men process the emotional weight of this violence, Mm -hmm. with the exception of Mr. Blonde, who is the 
absolute. Well, even mm. watching him process it, which is yeah. to not process it at all because it's natural yes. to him. Yeah, one hundred percent. You know, it, the and this is very much skipping ahead, but to to the final scene where Mr. White is holding Mr. Orange, the acting in those last Tim Roth, Tim motherfucking Roth mm-hmm. in this movie gives, I mean, what is one of the best performances I've ever seen. Yes. The duality, I truly, I mean, I know I saw this film for the first time when I was in like 10th grade, right? So I, I wasn't like, you know, the most whatever. But I truly believe that it was not him who was the undercover cop, who was the narc. Yep. And so to go back and to see him play like a completely solid delinquent, basically, mm-hmm. gangster, whatever you want to call it, then a completely innocent, like, never gone undercover before cop who's like has to learn the commode story which is the funniest part of the movie and what makes the movie the commode story like is the heart of the movie i know a lot of people are like um they cut his ear off and i'm like that's great the commode story though yes (laughs) let me tell you about some script writing honey Mm -hmm. okay (laughs) yeah that actually that part of the movie was the part where i was the most awake the the violence the violence i was covering my eyes i didn't want to see what was happening Mm -hmm. but when they were going through his story, I was just so engaged. And the way he, even in that small story, the way Tim Roth as an actor transforms into someone who like isn't sure about what he's reading, doesn't really know his lines, to completely delivering the story, knowing every, believing in his heart of hearts, every single part of this story that he knows is made up is amazing. And then when you compare it, like you contrast those two people, the undercover cop who's like new and a rookie to the undercover cop who really thinks he has it and isn't going to die to his role as like the solid gangster to the end, to the end. Mm -hmm. And throughout, you know, like throughout when he's dying and he's keeping his cover and he's learning more about these people and he's actually gaining more information as he's dying, right? He's using his death as a ploy to learn their names, to learn where they're from. And then talking to the cop, you know, and you're like, oh, shit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then at the end, at the end, when him and Mr. White have that conversation and he's just like, I'm a cop, I'm sorry. And you're like... Oh my God. And, and the, the reluctance with which Mr. White puts the gun against his head, it's almost as if he feels obligated. Obligated. He, he doesn't know any other reaction. He does. He isn't taught what to do in a moment of that betrayal beyond revenge, but he knows in his heart of hearts that that's not what he wants to do. He just doesn't know what else to do. Yeah. So let's also really quick aside, talk about um, when this movie Okay, talk about the types of violence in this movie. And then in terms of visual violence that we actually get to see, when Tarantino lets us see it and when he doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. There are two main, perhaps the biggest points of violence in the whole film that we don't get to see. We don't see the cop's ear getting cut off by Mr. Blonde. He geniusly, I mean, he moves the camera in many genius ways throughout the whole film. Like, there are scenes where he doesn't really cut. He kind of dances with the camera like it pans it moves around this whole warehouse space like really beautifully and effortlessly um and then he one of the examples of that is the scene that everyone talks about which is when mr blonde cuts the ear off of the cop that he has kidnapped and kept in his trunk um after after the robbery um and basically what happens is you see that he's like about to do something 
you don't know exactly what, but you know he has a knife. <laughs> and then it pans away. You just hear the cop screaming, basically. And then when the camera pans back, his ear is cut off. And Mr. Blonde makes some sort of joke of like, uh, did you hear that or whatever? And like then tosses mm-hmm. the ear to the side. That's time one, which is genius. And then time two is when Mr. White shoots Mr. Orange, like at the very, very end. You hear the gunshot and then you, you see Mr. White get shot by the cops but you don't actually see Mr. White shoot Mr. Orange because it's just focused on his face. And that is like, again, genius. And I think, I don't know exactly what it's saying about violence necessarily and like what we see and what we can't see, but I think it is saying something. And I think, I guess, it's trying to get you to focus on some aspect other than the actual physical violence that you're seeing, right? Maybe more so why the characters would do it. Or mm-hmm. what about it is either um, an upside or a downside, like enticing or a turn off to them? You know, are they struggling? Are they doing it gleefully? And I think that those two examples, you know, I'll never be able to completely understand or say why. But to me, those are two signs that like, oh, this is a movie. Because I I don't know. I think even though it's incredibly well written, I think you could paint this movie as just like, a teenage boy's fucking fantasy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like you definitely like could. easily could just be like, oh, he just wanted to get his fucking rocks off to some violence and like what he wants to do and like all of the things, all the times he's wanted to say the n word, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up. With additionally, another form of violence the other that one. I was thinking about was the violence of words. Mm-hmm. That's and the other one. It is hard. It is. So it's hard, hard to hear them say to, it. It is not only hard to hear them say it, it is hard in the way, in the context, in the forms of stories they tell while using the N word while talking about like <sighs> the most, the most classic example. And I can tell you that pretty much every queer person feels this. We are so tired of prison rape jokes. Mm-hmm. They are so played out and and i'm 100 sure they were played out when this movie came out and i i want to get so mad at them and i want to really just kind of turn off my brain because i think it's just in such bad taste but it, it feels almost like it would be a disservice to painting these right. men as if, if they weren't to tell these stories in this way because they say it and you're like well that's exactly the type of person you exactly talk and i 100 agree and so i i, I... I want to bring up the scene where they're talking about Pam Greer in the car, where they're both sexualizing her and also saying the N-word and saying some pretty stereotypical things about black people. And we're talking N-word hard ER, guys. We're not talking about like, like, you know, like these are like the words that they choose. And it's not just race, you know, like the words that they choose are pretty bad. But even then, when they're picking the names and the guy says something about like at least... Yeah, yeah, it's I don't want to repeat it. But yeah, even then, it's like not even just black people or straight people. Yeah, it's just everyone gets fucking just everyone except white men just gets trashed in this movie. But um, that scene in the car where they're talking about Pam Greer is very realistic and very amazing because you can see each sort of character's like hesitation about 
when they start to actually give into this idea that yes, they have also had this fantasy and yes, they feel the same way. Right. And so Mm -hmm. in the car, like I forget who starts it, but it's like, whoever says it first, I don't remember who, you know, is like, and everyone's kind of like, I think it was Steve Buscemi's character. (laughs) And then you can see like sort of the points where every other person in the car, except Mr. Orange, because he is the undercover cop, um, where every other person in the car, like, gives in and is like, oh, actually, LOL, yeah, me too, or that's really funny. And I think that that is such an amazing show of character. And then to turn it back on a Mr. Orange, who your first introduction to his backstory is him talking to another black cop, right? So then you, who's clearly like a mentor, who's helping him prepare for this undercover job that he's about to do. And so then to like know that and to have to like be with him sitting in the car, having this conversation, knowing that he's supposed to be one of the good guys. Now that's questionable because it seems like he falls into this job pretty easily, but you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's very, I mean, all the dynamics going on there are so interesting and I think it is necessary and I completely agree with you. And here's why I think movies that are aware of what kind of movies they are, have more liberties to take risks because this movie makes no qualms, minces no words about the fact that these men fucking suck, right? None of them are heroes. Even this cop, it's like questionable. It's questionable. He kills a a very innocent person in this movie. And he feels tons of remorse about it, but he does it and he does it because he's been so immersed in this story, right? Like in this background. He he literally says, I can't believe that bitch shot. Yep. Like even, even his remorse is coded in his own frustration with the fact that he was downed by such a random act. Yes. So even him questionable and the movie makes no pretenses to believe that these men are good men. And so it makes sense for them to be speaking the way not good men would speak, you know? And so I think Mm -hmm. that to me, it's actually justifiable within the confines like of the film. And a lot of people walked out of the film, like as it was screening in different places and Tarantino himself has been like, I understand that it's too like uncomfortable for certain people and that they don't want to see it or witness. Wes Craven walked out this damn movie. Wes Craven makes horror films. Really? Wes Craven walked out this really? damn movie. Yes. Whoa. And Quentin Tarantino was like, I get it. But to me, that's the biggest compliment because I'm trying to make you uncomfortable. And I think... a Man, does he do yes, it. Yes. And I think a good counterpoint to that is actually one of my main criticisms of um, another film. Jonah Hill's Mid-90s. Those kids use some language in that film that I don't think is cool and I the reason why I'm not okay with it is because the film doesn't justify it right the whole point of that movie is that the main character looks up to these kids because they're cool and they're skaters and they're doing things that no one at home is letting him do and then to have them use that language is like okay now you're taking these people who are actually glorified and you're having them use this language which I don't personally agree with but I think if you're going to do it Reservoir Dogs does it correctly. These are horrible guys. No, the movie is not trying to make you believe that they're good guys. In fact, it's probably trying to prove the opposite. 
And so let them use horrible language. Like that is what they would be saying, especially in 1992. Yeah. 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 Uh, Also, another thing that I find is when a scene is just so flawless that you just kind of burst out laughing Mm -hmm. because you can't believe that that's actually what happened. Mm -hmm. And the example of that being the Mexican standoff Mm -hmm. where all three of them shoot each other simultaneously. I, I was watching with my dad and we burst out laughing mm-hmm. which it, and, and it's it, it's not all the reaction and i remember psychoanalyzing myself after thinking why did i just burst out laughing that's just the exact opposite reaction that should have happened but the way that it was shot and the emotions leading up to that moment and realizing that tarantino had perfectly set up his ending with that like triple kill is it was just ingenious it, it, it was one, one of those things where i I have to tip my hat because the entire scene leading up to the end and the end being the decision to just essentially show a man wrestling with his own violence in the last moments of his life because he knows nothing else. Yeah. He knows no other way to exist. It was ingenious. I had never seen a movie like that before and apparently neither had a lot of people. You know, it truly is considered one of the most influential indie films. I'm never going to get over the fact that, like, the money store was the robbery and Reservoir Dogs is the rest. 100%. <laughs> For next week, we are going into very different territory. We are immediately mellowing out, and I am allowing my little jazz major, post-jazz major heart mm-hmm. to shine. Let him shine. With Alice Coltrane's Journey in Sachidananda, which is one of the most important jazz albums that I think none of people talk about, particularly because jazz is such a male-dominated field mm-hmm. and everyone talks about John Coltrane and right. look, you should, as a saxophonist, John Coltrane is the god, he is the goat, but Alice Coltrane did some stuff and we need to talk <laughs> about what she did. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited. I have never heard, I don't think I've ever heard a single thing by Alice. Um, my life has just been so ruled by John fans. Especially from Philly. Yeah. And so I just never heard anything about Alice. But knowing John, knowing the that we're going jazz, knowing that Alice is a black woman, which by the way, now that we can get out of the the suburbs, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we can get get to to some you know some more yeah. people of color, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. not to completely like you know erode MC Ride's existence. He obviously is a person of color, but everybody else that we have done so far, especially on my part, have been white. So <laughs> I am going to have you watch the Watermelon Woman. Yes. I only saw it a few months ago when, um, I don't know, when Black Lives Matter was very much all the rage (laughs) because people like to use it as a trend. (laughs) Um, Whoa, okay, this is a movie that I've been I had heard about the film. I'd never heard about it before. It's an indie film. It was released in 1996, the year of my birth, (laughs) and it takes place in Philadelphia and it is written by, directed by, and starring... A black woman. It's just good, man. I mean, not to like lead you into whatever. I will fully 
I will fully lead you with the Alice Coltrane album. The Alice. Okay, Coltrane great. So we're leading each other. So this phenomenal. is good. <laughs> and and I yeah yeah and I, <laughs> yeah I will fully lead you with the Alice like my jazz heart is singing Alice great. Coltrane. I will lead you. That album is phenomenal. This like it, in in the in almost in the exact opposite way. Like this week I. I was like, oh man, I'm going to torture Nadira with Death Grips. And she's going to like it, but she's going to hate herself. Mm-hmm. Like you stop it. You had, you had to stop taking notes halfway through this. I, I, this week am like, I am just so excited for Nadira to listen because this is the exact opposite of torturing. This <laughs> is, <God. laughs> this is a fulfilling experience. Oh. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Love that for me. That that is the money store and Reservoir Dogs off the list. This chaotic week is over (laughs) this chaotic week is over that is those things off the list thank god (laughs) (laughs) and join us next time for a much more tranquil week oh thank the lord bye guys (laughs) bye Off the List is made by Ben and me, Nadira. Our artwork is by Rebecca Pearson, and our music is by Cedric Hawkeyes.